Let's open our text and then we'll explain what we're doing here this morning. It says this in John 20. Now, very early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been moved away from the entrance. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told him, they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out to go to the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down and saw the strips of linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who had been following him, arrived and went right into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the strips of linen cloth, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first came in and he saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. So the disciples went back to their homes. This is our last week of this series where we have been encountering Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. These moments through John where we have witnessed Jesus showing up and speaking to people from his heart, touching their heart and challenging them to new things. And Easter is a special day because it answers some of our deepest questions about God. We like to think it answers the deepest questions about ourselves, first of all, because we're people-oriented, we're self-oriented people. And so we like to think that Easter answers the question about ourselves first. But the answers that we seek on Easter aren't answering questions for us, they're answering questions for others, for God. What do we know about God through Easter? However, our deepest questions manifest themselves. They all get back to some form of, is it true? When we look at our relationships in our lives, we're looking at the other person. Is it true? Do they love me? Are they saying what they mean? Are they speaking to me truthfully? Are they dealing with me in a true manner? When I value this person, are they valuing me back? Any question that we can ask ourselves about relationships or about other people or about God is, is it true? And so when people come to church, they are always looking for the answer to this question, is it true? Is it true? And we talked about truth last week when we encountered Lazarus and his sisters. That those who hear my voice are the people that live in truth. They are the ones that walk in the light out of the tomb. We talked all about God creating true believers. The question a story, though, always seeks to ask is what happens next? When you are riveted by a story, a movie, we want to know, well, what happens next? And then what happened? And then what happened? And any good storyteller will get you on the edge of your seat questioning, well, what happens now? What's next? What happens next for this person? And so one of the most unresolved feelings that we get in the Bible is in those three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection where people are wandering away 
from Jerusalem, shaking their heads. Well, that didn't work. That wasn't supposed to happen. Now what are we supposed to do? What happens next? Because after all, the Easter story is our story, right? That's what we've come here today to understand. How do I fit into all of this? Jesus took my sin on the cross and he died and he's gone. Well, now he's just one of a hundred messiahs in the first century who's come and said, I am a prophet, I am a son of God, and I have died. And that didn't work. I really thought that he was the one. I really thought that he was the son of suffering, the son of man, the son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Remember, I was walking with John and I stepped away from John and his beliefs and his following because he told me that Jesus was the one that was predicted. He was the one that was come to suffer. And then I walked with him up on that hill where he was to die in the most excruciating way possible. By the way, you know what's the most interesting thing? Is that when Isaiah got the prophecy about the suffering servant, crucifixion wouldn't be invented for another 300 years. When Jesus predicted his own death, by reading this prophecy of Isaiah, by reading through the scriptures of his own coming, he knew that crucifixion was the way. And yet when it was written, it hadn't even been invented. So in light of these events, in light of Jesus dying on the cross, in light of my Savior, who I believed and put in so much belief with and followed for three and a half years to his death, what happens now? Where do I go from here? I have to start all over again. My rabbi, my teacher, my friend, my beloved, my savior, my Messiah has been killed. What do I do now? And I think an even better question that, that they might have asked, how should I live now in light of this? What is true about all these things? Is it true? Where the crucifixion creates a lot of questions, the resurrection answers them very simply. That we get stuck in these questions, we can't move from crucifixion to resurrection as people very easily. And so a lot of our lives, we just stay at the crucifixion and ask these questions. Well, is it true? What should I know? How should I live in light of what they've done to my Savior? But this is a story this morning about a woman who went running, a woman who had an encounter with a person who goes running to other people to tell her what she's seen. Because these disciples, they were seeking answers. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about this passage is how many people were out for a run. There are a lot of people running in this story. Mary Magdalene goes to, and according to the other gospels, there's a lot of other Marys in this story. There's like six people maybe that we can count that go to this tomb in the morning because they're doing what they want to do to honor the body, which is prepare it for long-term 
They've brought spices. They've brought smells. They've brought uh, balms to soothe the body. And she's just following through on how she wants to honor her Savior. But she notices something's wrong, that the tomb is open, the stone has been rolled away, and this is a cause for concern. This is a cause for urgency. And so we need more help in this situation. We need more people. We need more eyes on this. So she runs and goes and gets two other disciples. Probably all of them came, but John only talks about two of them. And they come running back. Maybe the others will understand what has happened. And if someone stole the body, they can help track it down. Notice how she's very confused about what's happened here, that it's still early morning. And this is, this is a metaphor for her as well, that not only is she in physical darkness, but she's standing at the tomb under the darkness of her mind confused about where the body has gone. Where have they buried my Savior? Where is my Lord? And so we ask, what happens next? How should I live in light of this information? How should I now go and move from the tomb to the disciples? Let's bring the disciples back. But it's clear something has happened that demands urgent action. But why run? If Mary brings you news that the body's gone, why run? The body's already gone. What's running to the tomb going to do for you? What's it going to do for the situation? Why not just casually saunter over there? The body was suspected stolen, so did they expect something to change with the speed at which they moved? Would that have changed where the body would suddenly be? If we're at the playground playing and we hear a scream, a cry of someone, someone's fallen, what do we do? We stand up and rush to aid. When the towers came down on 9-11, most of us remember the stark images of first responders and emergency services running toward the burning rubble, running up the stairs to reach those who might be in need. Or when we hear of a shooting, we see emergency personnel running into the building, not away from it. And our goal as people of God is to remember that we are running to something and not from something. American writer and humorist James Thurber wrote, all human beings should try to learn what they're running from and to and why. So notice the difference in direction. We can become Christian in a few different ways. Are we running from our past? A fear of punishment? Are we worried about a life of futility? That if we don't become Christian, then things will be worthless. They won't mean anything. That's running from something to become a Christian. That's running from a past to a new life. But Jesus calls us to something greater. He calls us to run to something. If we are Christians, we need to be running to Jesus if we want to feel anything worthwhile. We're running to get into heaven. We're running to have a better life. 
Or is this a response that changes everything for us? A response from Jesus where we've now decided that I've done running from things. I want to run to Jesus. Each week here at this church, we run to Jesus. We fall in love with him time and time again. We don't tell people about how to run away from their sins. We point people to Jesus. Because in that process, their sin is gone. Having a relationship with Jesus is the most important thing. It changes everything that we do. But running towards Christ means we run with urgency to right the wrongs of the world, to outdo each other in love, to prevent injustice. We're not just running toward Jesus. We're running toward everything that he loved. We're running toward everything that he kept precious to him. The people that he loved those that hungered and thirst after righteousness, those that mourned, those that seek after him. We don't just run toward Jesus. Because we can get pretty comfortable in this area. If we've decided that we want to become a Christian to run toward heaven, that just to get into heaven, I'll become a Christian, then that's a pretty lukewarm response to the love of Christ. That's a lukewarm response to what Jesus has come to do to stand in front of us outside of the tomb. It's this latent Christianity. It's this passivity in Christianity where we're like, yeah, I'm comfortable. I'm running towards Jesus. I'm in love with him. He is a great guy, but that's where it stops. And so all of a sudden, this story changes. Because you see what the disciples do with their knowledge? They return to their homes. And so often, and I'm guilty of this too for so much of my life, is that I have an encounter with something that changes everything. An empty tomb, Jesus doing exactly what he says he's going to do, and then I return to my home. That doesn't change lives. And so the story does something different because there's something else happening here that's not on a surface level because it suddenly changes from the woman who came running to the woman who lingered. Because where we have our actual encounter with Jesus is not in the running, but in the lingering, in the I have seen something that I can't explain, so I'm just going to return to my home. But rather, I'm going to stand here and see what happens. Listen to what it says in verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she bent down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, by the way, it does not say when those angels got there. But Peter and John, in their haste to find Jesus, run away before they get the whole story. Because, see, I like to think that those angels had been there the whole time. And they just had not seen enough. They had not waited for the light to rise. They had not yet waited. They had not lingered there expecting something else. 
The angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Mary replied, they have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And because she thought he was the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will take him back. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus replied, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and informed the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what Jesus had said to her. This is the first sermon in history given by a woman. And it's five words. I have seen Jesus. And every week when we gather here, I stand up here, Kelsey stands there, and you know what we both say each week? I have seen Jesus. We do not need anything else. We do not need any more words than I have seen Jesus. And here's what he told me to tell you. And here's how that makes me live. I have seen Jesus, and let's do this thing together. Let's not just run to something, but let's run for something. Let's run with something. Now, what turns in this story? Now, for us, here's what turns, that we recognize the phrase, Jesus asks Mary, who are you looking for? And we're keen readers of the Bible. We're smart people. I know this about you. We recognize this as the first phrase Jesus asks his disciples. In John 1, 38, what are you looking for? What do you want? And Jesus is standing there and he says again, what do you want? What are you looking for? Because are you looking for truth? Because here I am. I'm standing here in front of you. But what changes for Mary, though, is when Jesus speaks her name. Mary. There's only one way our Lord can talk to us. And it's deep in our hearts. It's an encounter with Christ that we only recognize when he says our names. There's a radical new presence of the risen Christ that connects to the memory and the intimacy of her relationship with Jesus. And us human beings, us us people of earth, we're seeking and questing for fullness of life. And John presents Mary as our patron of seeking fullness. John makes it clear that what humanity truly seeks is what Mary found in that cemetery, the risen Christ, the light that shines in darkness, the embodied glory of God. And this is why Mary Magdalene's example is so instructive. She 
remains. She lingers at the tomb and she gives voice to her grief to whoever will listen. Sometimes we don't think that we can do that in the presence of God. Sometimes we think that we can't go that way. We can't be sad. But Mary stands there and weeps and is in tears and she's confused and questioning what happens now. Is this true? And Jesus shows up for her, for her, because she lingered, because she waited, she paused. She was patient enough to see this thing through. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus lifts Mary's broken spirit. Do not cry. In the other gospels, it says, do not be afraid. And every encounter with Jesus starts that way. As he enters into the room with the disciples, do not be afraid. You know who I am. You recognize me, don't you? How can I be here? Resurrection Sunday represents renewal and revival. Those things that seem and appear inconceivable become plausible, and the unimaginative becomes reachable. This isn't a story about running. This is a story about lingering. This is a story about an encounter with the risen Christ. An encounter with Christ changes the urgency. It changes running to something to running for something. Go and tell them what I have told you. And now she doesn't run to the disciples. She runs for Christ. She runs with Christ. And part of being a missional church is understanding that God doesn't have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. God doesn't have a mission for his people. He has a people for his mission. And when we change the direction of that, when we change the idea behind that, that we are not waiting to get commands from God, but we are already joining in the running that has been taking place since this Sunday morning to go and tell people, I have seen the Lord. Where is our urgency now? Why are we not urgently running with those on that Sunday morning? It changes running to something to running for something. I have a friend, Sarah, who is a runner. and She's a really good runner. Um, she wasn't always a great runner, but she worked at it. She got better and better. And she started out that she wanted to get in shape. She wanted to get healthy. And so she was running away from something, a, a bad lifestyle, one that was not healthy. And then she started running to something. She started to create this idea that she wanted to become a major marathoner. She wanted to run all six of the world's major marathons. And so she was running to something. She now all of a sudden had a goal in mind to run to something. But then, even then, it started to change because things would pop up on my social feeds and she was running for something. She partnered with the American Cancer Society. And in those miles that she was running, she was getting um, sponsored by people in memory of those people she had lost to cancer in her family. You see how the step is, I was once running from something and then I was running to something and that's a good goal, 
But now she's running for something. She's running with something. And she just this past year completed the last of the six major marathons. And she's got a special medal that has six little medallions on it that says she's run all six of them. It changes our goal, it changes our mindset, it changes the direction in which we run and for the reason that we run. Running for something means we transform neighborhoods, we love everyone, we help those in need, we're in position to help. I want you to imagine a scenario, you're sitting in a cafe, a coffee shop, and you're just there enjoying your avocado toast for the morning as you normally do. And suddenly through the door bursts this man who says, I've got great news for you. It's the best news that you could possibly imagine. Now, what do you imagine that good news could be? Well, in one scenario, the good news could be that his daughter has been sick for a very long time. The doctors have finally found a cure for her and she's going to live. We welcome that. That is good news, but why share that with a room full of strangers in a coffee shop? Or maybe it's more positive, and the Tigers have just won the World Series, and incredible long odds that they weren't even, we didn't even know they went to the World Series, but they just won the World Series, and isn't this great, fantastic news? And, but yeah, why aren't you celebrating with the people that watch the Tigers and love the Tigers? We're just here in a cafe, minor, that's good news, I agree, but why did you leave the celebration to tell the non-fans about this? Or imagine this small town cafe has been going through a severe depression and uh, poverty and everyone's laid off, there's a lot of unemployment and all of a sudden the man rushes in and said there's been some people that have found oil reserves under the city and now all of a sudden people's lives have changed because there's oil and there are new jobs and there's new wealth and there are new opportunities for people to live. Well, that's good news. But it also changes my life too. And a lot of times when we run to share the gospel with people, when we run to tell people that Christ is risen, he has risen indeed, we feel like people that are running in to tell them that our daughter is safe, that the doctors have found a cure, and then they just look at us like, huh, why do I care about this? We are not reaching people unless we are telling them something that has changed their lives. Everything is now different from this point on. Everyone's life will be different because of this encounter with Christ who has awoken from the tomb and stands there lingering outside to console people about his own death. This is good news that changes people's lives. This is not a story about evangelism. I know it gets preached that way all the time, that we have to run out and share the good news with everyone as fast as we can. This is a story about Jesus. This is a story about how we have encountered him. I have seen my Lord. And now here's what happens next. It is true, and it changes lives. How do we get ourselves into a place to hand that truth off. 
an encounter with Christ invites us to take urgent action in everything that we do. Not just in sharing that, but urgently living in a way that shows people that Christ is who he says he is. Urgently living in a way that declares God to be true. Urgently living in a way that shows the world this is who he said he is. He lingers and so do we. That things might not always be the way we expect them to be. Things might not always look the right way. But we are people of a God who shows up when we are hurting. We are people of a God who demands urgent action from us every morning. This is the good news of Easter. That we've found oil. That everyone gets a second chance at life. That things aren't poverty-stricken any longer. We get to live in a new way 